Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Thursday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. Today we have Theo DeRosa on. Theo is a writer and researcher for Major League Baseball. We talked about some general trends in the game, the shortened game times, why more and more people seem to be grabbing gravitating back towards baseball this year. I know I've been among them as we covered in the podcast, some different rule changes, how they've affected the sport. And then of course, a look across the league and how he thinks some of these divisions will shake out as it feels like we have more teams than uh, really we've seen in a while that are at least in the mix or uh, halfway trying to win where a few years there, it felt like the league, half the league was just tanking from uh, April on. So anyway, it's a good conversation. Buck up. I think you'll enjoy it. Before we get to that though, we have a brand new sponsor to welcome to the Rippy Rights family. This podcast is now brought to you by Spire. Really appreciate them joining the Rippy Rights family. Happy to have their partnership. The way businesses collaborate is changing. Seaspire Voice and WebEx give your organization the tools to stay ahead. Call, meet, and message on any device, anywhere from one secure cloud-based platform. The past few years have shown just how vital remote work is for businesses of all sizes. But if you want to protect your organization from cyber threats, that's why Seaspire Voice with WebEx has enterprise-grade security built from the ground up. So you can enhance your how your teams work together in and out of the office, all with reliability, availability, and scalability that traditional business phone systems just can't offer. I use Cspire. You should too. Learn more about what Cspire Voice and WebEx can do for your organization at cspire.com/business. Cspire, customer inspired. Welcome aboard. Happy to have them along. Podcast is also brought to you by Rent the Sip Oxford. Good friend of the pod, basketball correspondent Bracken Ray has a rental property at Turnberry available for use throughout the year. Still got some football game weekends open. The Mercer, Vandy, and ULM ULM football weekends are still available for rent. You know how it gets during big weekends. It can be hard to find a place to, to find a place to stay at an affordable rate. Bracken Ray's got you covered. It's a it's a unit at Turnberry off Old Taylor Road. It will sleep eight comfortably. It's gated. It has a pool, a sauna, tennis courts. Great for games, orientation, rush, parents weekend, or if you're just stopping by, you want to make a night or two trip to Oxford. You don't feel like dealing with the hotel. Rent the Sip Oxford has you covered with this Turnberry unit. Go to rentthesipoxford.com to check availabilities. You can also email Bracken, B-R-A-C-K-E-N, at rentthesipoxford.com for any questions. Go ahead and book your stay now. If you go online and use the promo code RippyWrites, that'll get you 100 bucks off any stay that's a two-night minimum. So you're getting a steal of a deal already with this great place, great location. It's less than a mile from campus, a straight shot to Swayze Field, basically a straight shot to Vaught-Hemingway Stadium and a grove just behind that. You need to check it out today if you're looking for a place to stay in Oxford any time of the year, but it also on big game weekends when the space becomes a little more scarce. You need to check them out, rentthesipoxford.com. You won't regret renting this Turnberry unit Trustworthy people, great place to stay. RentTheSipOxford.com. Go book it today and use that promo code and get 100 bucks off. Check them out. Again, RentTheSipOxford.com. All right, here is Theo DeRosa. All right, we now welcome on Theo DeRosa. He is a writer, researcher for MLB. Uh, did the whole Mississippi college football craziness. I appreciate you joining me, man. How you doing? Doing well. How are you? Doing well, doing well. On this uh, 4th of July morning, I guess what better day than any to uh, talk some baseball uh, I guess real quick though, before we get to that, is it weird 
now that July is like your down, what used to be your downtime before you ramp up to college football. And now this is like actually your busy season. Is that taking some adjusting? I guess so. You're, now that you put it like that. Yeah. I mean, June, July until at least like SEC media days was always kind of the slow time, you know, kind of try to fill up June with college baseball, which I still, you know, was watching even out here, I guess Mississippi kind of made me a convert to that. I, you know, knew about college baseball before going out there. Didn't really watch a lot, but I really enjoyed the tournament that obviously got the chance to cover Mississippi State in the 2021 College World Series. So that was really cool. But you're right. Definitely a lot busier than I'm used to being. I'm uh, kind of dreading the all-star break because then there's about nothing for about three or four days. And I'm not, <laughs> I've never been good at handling that. So we'll see. So we were talking a little bit before we started recording, but you were kind of giving me a description of your job on a daily basis. Kind of to let the listeners know kind of what you do daily. Sure. I have two types of shifts. So we have the news desk shifts and alerts shifts. Alerts is push notifications sent through the app, either to fans of specific teams or to everyone who has news notifications turned on through the app. That can be breaking news stories, injury updates, you know, roster moves, trades, or most likely it's video highlights during a game. So home runs, you know, uh, stories, recaps, um, anything pretty much that we deem worthy of alerts on news desk, just working on whatever stories are assigned to me, pitching my own stat cast related stories, actually answering research questions related to statistics from our beat writers and uh, producers, as well as just kind of handling whatever else comes up. Awesome. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is baseball is in a very interesting spot to me right now. I grew up enjoying baseball. I actually grew up a Cubs fan, oddly enough. And then I would say it actually tapered off around 2016, 2017, which is a very odd time for me to stop watching Chicago Cubs baseball because that was kind of the peak. I did the whole MLB.com internship. I covered the Reds for a summer. And really, like from that time on, I would say in the last three to four years, I didn't really watch a whole lot of Major League Baseball. I liked baseball. Obviously, grew up watching college baseball. Um, I enjoyed that despite kind of it being more of a flawed product. It just felt there was more action to me. And I liked Major League Baseball, particularly the playoffs. You can't really beat that. But like for the last three to five years in particular, I understood the guy who would tell me he doesn't watch Major League Baseball because it's boring. But now over the particularly, I would say from like May on, for whatever reason, uh, we get Reds. We're like in the Reds network in North Mississippi. I still haven't quite figured out how that's the case. But for the last three months or so, really since the beginning of the season, I found myself flipping on Reds games. I kind of have it on as a nightly thing. I've gotten back into it. I wouldn't say that the Reds winning or losing affects my day or anything like that. But I found myself gravitating back towards watching a lot more baseball. I watch a lot more of the Sunday night baseball. And I know I'm not really the only one that that's been the case for this year, just kind of you know, judging anecdotal, you know, evidence on the internet and people kind of saying the same things. Why do you think that is? I mean, you have to start with the pitch clock. I've seen it at the minor league level. You know, I believe college has it as well. And I really think the concern about it was overblown. I know, you know, people react adversely to kind of any change and some changes aren't good. I mean, there are changes that any sport that probably weren't for the best, but the pitch clock, I know that there's, you know, well-publicized violations people getting automatic strikes or striking out i still think that's relatively rare as people get used to this i mean they had spring training to kind of test it out and now i mean I, it's pretty clear it improves the game without too much of a distraction and that can be important for people i mean i'm gonna watch a baseball game whether it's two hours 20 minutes or three hours 40 minutes but a lot of people can't say the same and it has shortened the game but i, I by i think 
20 minutes, half an hour. And it totally, I mean, it feels like even more sometimes. I remember going to the opening day game in Oakland against the Angels. And I realized if I wanted to go get dinner, I'd have to miss like two whole innings. And I don't remember it being like that before. Like you could definitely miss a lot less if you stepped out for a minute. I mean, the game is faster paced and I think that's huge. I mean, with the Reds too, I mean, that's like one of the most fun teams in baseball right now. So they really see are. where you're uh, interested. Yeah. And so I think you're exactly right. And I think the last part you just hit on um, is probably why like people find it more appealing. It's not the fact that like, I don't think anyone's like, oh, I'm not going to watch this game because it'll take three hours and 20 versus like two 30. I don't think people think that way. I think the, but that's the evidence of the pitch clock working it being shaving down game time. But what you said and hit on at the end is why I think people find it more interesting now. And what has kind of made it more appealing product is it's just faster pace. It feels like there's way less downtime, between pitches and for whatever reason i think the pitch clock's been one of the greatest rule implements in any major american sports league in the last 10 years or so that i can really remember and i think it's really just about that there's not a whole lot of just okay they threw a pitch everybody step out of the box do your batting gloves walk around scratch yourself whatever and then you know 65 seconds later or something there's another pitch it just feels like it's back to back to back to back and the way to measure that, I guess, is the trim down game time. But it just feels like as a viewer, you're sitting there and you're watching it and you feel like you just said, like, go into an opening day game. It's like, oh, I might miss two innings if I go to the concession stand. Or if I get up and go to the fridge, I might actually miss something significant versus it feeling so much slower paced before. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right. Just the downtime between pitches. I remember, I think, during spring training, seeing a, a video of an entire inning in spring training played at the same time it took Pedro Baez of the Dodgers to deliver one pitch because I he was stepping that. off the mound. Yeah, it was. I mean, you could, he's obviously an extreme example, one of the slowest workers in the league when he was in it, but it, it was kind of striking the fact that, you know, he could throw one pitch and have all this downtime and they could play an entire inning in the same amount of time, which was like two minutes. So not everything's that fast. I mean, there's still some, you know, long at bats, some tension in the game. And I do wonder, you know, how the pitch clock might be affecting pitchers as far as just their routines going. I know some of them are probably still like, hey, what, what is this? But overall, I mean, I can't help but think it's been a good thing. And uh, you would probably know we a lot more well-versed to speak on this than I would. But one of the other things I've noticed is, is baseball got to kind of the, the extreme of the three true outcome era, I'll call it for the lack of a better phrase, you know, strikeout, walk, home run. Stealing bases was de-emphasized. Uh, I don't know. We can blame Brad Pitt for that one. Um, but the like the whole just a lot of like I mentioned downtown between pitches, there also just wasn't a lot of live ball action. And I think it while it was still awesome to go to major league baseball games for a while, it made it a little bit of a tougher product to consume on TV. From what I've watched this year, and I don't really have any research to back it up. Maybe you do. But it feels like there's a lot more stolen bases. There's a lot more balls being put in play and just a lot more action on my screen in a two and a half hour period than there ever was before. Yeah, I'm not sure about the exact numbers, but there have definitely been more stolen bases. I feel pretty confident speaking to that. And as far as balls put in play, I, I don't know if the strikeout rate is down. I haven't really looked at that. But I mean, you had the shift restrictions now, two infielders uh, on each side when the pitch is released. Obviously, you can move outfielders over. You can run as far as you want once the pitch is thrown. But I think the shift restrictions have come into play, too. I mean, MLB wanted, you know, more balls in play, more uh, hit, more of those balls in play to turn into hits, especially when it. I mean, you know how frustrating it can be when you hit a 105 mile an hour 
hard ground out right up the middle and there's somebody standing right there behind second base and I think that's kind of what they're trying to avoid with this rule and I think it's part of the reason you have seen more action I believe runs per game is up maybe that's part of the pitch clock too but definitely stolen bases cool to see Ronald Acuna Jr. has 40 now Este Ruiz has something in the mid 40s if not 50 by now it is it's cool to see this you know stolen bases becoming more of a part of the game again one of the things I forgot to mention a second ago, and I was curious to kind of get your take on it, is uh, particularly as you started covering it and now obviously watch it for a living, is I, wa- I remember watching a spring training game in March, and it was the first time I'd like seen baseball since the season prior. And I could tell immediately with the whole pitch clock thing. Like I'm talking within the first half inning I watched. So I was like, whoa, this just looks different. It was a very – I just felt like as soon as all these rule changes were implemented, it was a very stark and very drastic pivot in the product. I don't know if you noticed the same thing. It just – it didn't take me a while to realize, oh, this is a totally different thing than I've watched before. I know. What you mean? And I think that was kind of intentional, you know, MLB marketing it that way. And I, I can't blame them. I think, I mean, I can see why they'd want to market those rule changes. I can see why they'd want to have it kind of full go in spring training and work out some of the kinks. And I'm curious to see, you know, if they'll make any adjustments to any of these new rules, you know, as the season goes on or next year. But yeah, I think you're right. I think it pretty evidently was a different product. Some might say better, some worse um, from the start. And I think it's not going to take all that long for people to get used to this is what they're accepting for baseball. I mean, there'll be some sticklers, but people adapt to changes pretty quickly. Yeah, absolutely. And then at the end of the day, like even for like the the kind of, I would say baseball loyalists or maybe anti-rule change at the same time, there's, I just feel like those people, there's no way you can sit there and watch it and be like, this isn't as good as I watched before. Like it's just, to me, it's objectively a better product. And I don't know how much room for debate there is there. One of the things that's also very interesting to me, and I don't know if this is just a, a like specific moment in time. And it just kind of happened this way because you just kind of, a, I would say team's timelines colliding. I don't know a better way to describe it. It feels like there's a lot more teams trying than there was five years ago. It felt like in 2018-ish, you know, half the league was just tanking, for the lack of a better phrase, or playing young players and in a rebuild, where it seems like if you just go around the divisions, like every single team in the AL East and the NL East is trying. Um, You know, the NL Central and AL Central, it feels like every single club in those divisions, except for the Kansas City Royals, are trying. They're not doing it very well. But, I mean, you go division by division, it's like it just doesn't feel like there's as many teams tanking, obviously the A's being an extreme example in the other direction. But it feels like there's more and more teams than ever before also going for it. Have you noticed that as well? Yeah, I think two of the recent examples are the, the aforementioned Reds and the Orioles, both you know having pretty good years, Orioles especially. I mean, I think they're second in that division right now not that far behind the Rays. And just two years ago, they were, they lost what, like 110 games. And yeah, Arizona, same thing. I'm pretty sure they lost exactly 110 games in 2021, started picking it up toward the end of last year. And now they're a contender in the West. You're right. It is fun to see that. I've always, you know, it's been tough to watch some of these teams like the Pirates and the Reds and the A's year after year. And I mean, the Pirates are falling off a bit, but all of those teams, not the A's, of course, but those teams are, are trying and doing pretty well. And it's fun to see that. I mean, I think people really like that. Obviously, the Reds were selling at games, getting a huge following. And, you know, because they deserve it. I mean, they've called up the prospects. They're fun. They're not bad. They have it. I think they're tied for first in the NL Central right now. And it's cool to see that for some of these teams that don't always try to contend, but yeah, when you mentioned that, I was like, well, the Royals are probably the one example of a team that 
doesn't really feel like it's trying. But you're right, even though maybe the Nats and the Tigers aren't great. I mean, they're certainly going to they seem to be trying for now, but we'll see how the trade deadline in about a month affects those things. Yeah, I guess you're right. I didn't think about the Nationals. They're probably, I wouldn't call it like trying, but it's almost like they've overperformed expectations by a long shot. But they're maybe not, you know, in the win now mode. So that was probably another one I missed in there. But it's, I don't know, it just makes the divisions and checking kind of the standings and the box scores on a nightly basis a lot more fascinating when you have these divisions that aren't wrapped up by July because, you know, three of the five teams in the division are trying to lose 95 to 105 games every year. And I just think that's another piece of it that makes it more exciting as well i'll just go subjective question here who's your favorite team to watch right now like if you're flipping on extra innings who do you enjoy watching the most if you had your pick of any game that's a good really good question um i don't know i i like the marlins i like watching Luis arise try to hit 400 you know they have some fun players some fun pitchers um i'm, I'm a phillies fan they're in my division you know theoretically but like i still enjoy watching them and i, I think they're fun to, to see that's a really good question. Um, I don't know. I like the White Sox just because they're kind of chaotic. They're not particularly yeah. great. I mean, you never know what's going to happen with them. I I enjoy the Mets for their broadcast booth, but little else. I mean, it's always fun. They they do a professional good job even when they're losing like this year. Um, Seattle can be fun, but they've kind of fallen off this year. Yeah, there. I mean, there's a lot of fun teams. The Reds are one of them too. I mean. Steer and McLean and Ellie. I mean, just that is intriguing, even though their pitching is interesting to say the least. Uh, yeah, uh, you can flip on most any game and enjoy it. However, if it's like Royals Tigers Day game, maybe not. Yeah, yeah, you'll catch a couple of duds in there as well. The Marlins are a fascinating team to me because I think that's probably another team that you could lump in the category of the Diamondbacks and the Reds to where, hey, maybe they're a little bit ahead of schedule. They had been really bad for quite a few years. And now it feels like we're the end of last year. I feel like you could see it, particularly in the final two months of the season, but they've really kind of turned a corner. But that's an interesting market because it's not one that traditionally draws well. It's bizarre that they won two World Series so early in their franchise's history. And then to see it turn the way it does, they had some weird stadium stuff for a while. You wouldn't think off just off the top of your head that South Florida would be a tough market to kind of gain interest in major league baseball but for a number of different reasons and probably mostly just dysfunction and mismanagement the marlins have been have had a very weird relationship with that market but this feels like a team that could turn the tide on that i don't know what their attendance numbers are it definitely doesn't feel like watching a normal marlins game most nights when you flip it on now at the ballpark but it just feels this feels a little more organic. They grew, kind of grew it up with guys in their farm system and they kind of built it and it feels a little bit more sustainable. Do you think this could be kind of a team in the next two to three years that kind of changes that relationship with South Florida and baseball? I think so. I mean, you go back to what I think they won two World Series uh, 1997 and 03, if I'm not mistaken. So, I mean, that was very early in their history and I'm pretty sure they had a lot of fans at the time, you know, when they're the Florida Marlins. But like you said, a lot of this team is homegrown. I mean, Jesus Luzardo and Arias are trade guys, but I mean, a lot of these guys are, you know, prospects from the, within the organization, like Eri Perez and a lot of guys like that. De La Cruz and Jesus Sanchez. And they're kind of overperforming right now. Their run differential last I checked was in the negatives. They have this crazy, literally historic success in one-run games, the best record in one-run games since 1900. Um That'll probably come down. You know, they'll probably lose some close games at the end of the year. Maybe won't make the playoffs. 
playoffs, maybe we'll get a wild card spot. But it doesn't mean that there's no hope. I mean, like you said, they're seeming to be ahead of schedule. Theoretically, their offense shouldn't be as far along as it is, but you do have a guy hitting 380 something at the top, so that always helps. And um, yeah, they're fun to watch, honestly. You know, Sandy Ocantra's fallen off this year, but I mean, you have Lizardo, you have Braxton Garrett, who's been pretty solid. A couple of guys coming back, like veteran Johnny Cueto, as you might remember from your Reds and every other team in the league. Um, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to watch them over the next few years because they definitely have potential. One of the teams that's fascinating to me and kind of a, you mentioned, I think you put it perfectly a second ago, chaotic, is the Chicago White Sox. And this whole window that they're currently in or have been in over the last two years, um, I don't think you could call it the Tony LaRusa era, but that was just a hilarious kind of side note in this whole thing that they have going, is they kind of went all in a couple of years ago and really kind of spent in free agency and really improved their roster Um you know, by a large margin in a very short amount of time. And then you had the one, I believe the NLDS series where they win the division and they lose to the Astros, I think was that two years ago, but you haven't really seen much since. And I would say if there's a fan base that like, I'd say hates the team is most frustrated with the single team, it's probably the Mets and the White Sox as the number one seeds in that whole contest there. What is the issue with the White Sox? Why do you think this has happened and in a window where they theoretically should be good for, you know, four or five years at a time, you really haven't seen any results out of outside of that one year. I know what you mean. Like, on paper, I said, I remember to a friend who's a White Sox fan last year, like, wow, this roster looks really good. Like, they should be, you know, a contender in the AL. And they obviously were not. I think they went yeah, exactly 500 last year. And while below 500 this year, they're still obviously in contention for the AL Central because the AL Central is not very good. However, um, you've seen Tim Anderson go from 300 hitter with some power to like 550 OPS, one of the worst in the league. You've seen Yasmani Grandal kind of do the same thing, marred by injuries, of course. Luis Robert looks really good, but he can't really do it alone. They haven't really taken any big swings on free agents while they spent some money. I believe the five-year, $75 million deal for Andrew Benintendi is the biggest contract in White Sox history as far as free agency goes. When you're limited like that, I mean, there might be only so much you can do unless you're preternaturally good at developing talent. And they have some talent on the roster, but they haven't clearly shown to be good enough to where that's going to get them into the playoffs. So they have guys, you know, like Dylan Cease and Lucas Giolito and even Mike Clevenger um, who will be, you know, valuable if they decide to blow it up and trade and maybe they can start a rebuild there with prospects. But Right now, I mean, it's just not working at the major league level for them. And when when you see a team that kind of shifts from rebuilding mode into this is our window, let's win, it usually seems like it's a combination of adding free agents. But that seems to be when it's most successfully implemented, adding on the peripheral where it feels like the base of the machine is your prospects. And, you know, the reason you were bad for four or five years and getting those high draft picks and having your prospects. And it seems like the the White Sox have had bad luck in this current window with their prospects. I don't know if panning out's a good word because you mentioned Luis Robert, but I remember I had them for three days in 2018 and their big prospect at the time was Eloy Jimenez. And he, I, I think, has either had some injury luck. It doesn't just feel like he's kind of stuck the way they thought he was. Do you think that's kind of an element to the struggle that they've had in this two, three-year window where they should be pretty good is just the fact that their prospects have not been as sturdy or dependable as they maybe thought when they kind of called them up? Yeah, absolutely. And Aloy is a good example. I mean, he's been, I saw him, you know, tear the cover off the ball in the Oakland series, but you're right. He's 
hurt a lot. I mean, sometimes he'll go on big cold streaks, you know, so it's hard to rely on him as a cornerstone to that team when you're supposed to have a top prospect do that. I know that their current top prospect, Colson Montgomery, was injured for a while and just like finally debuted in like, I think, low A or high A or something. So a very low level, which makes it tough when your top guy is that far away from the majors. I don't know about you, but except for maybe Oscar Colas, who started the year in the majors, the Cuban uh, outfielder, I don't really know that many White Sox prospects. They're not household right. names. I'm sure White Sox fans know them and expect them to contribute, but these aren't necessarily the highest regarded guys. And I'm sure I'm forgetting some, some people, but definitely, I don't know. I don't know that the White Sox have a bunch of guys waiting in the wings to help improve this team. Another big picture thought I had is I kind of just look at the state of baseball and, you know, we mentioned the amount of teams that are at least competitive, whether they're, you would call them in their window or not, is, and I kind of experienced this as watching the Cubs come up where Theo Epstein gets hired. They suck for three to four years. I can't remember how many it was exactly in there, but you knew in 2015, like it was starting to turn. You could really kind of tell a little bit in 2014, but 2015, they overperformed. I think they won the wild card because the Cardinals won like 108 games that year. But it was very predictable. Like you knew, okay, bad, bad, bad. This is when it's at least supposed to start to turn. Do you think, and I feel like some of that came along with the, you know, analytics, looking into numbers, people getting a little bit smarter with the payroll to where it's like tank, tank, don't spend any money, then spend a bunch. And you have like a five-year window. But now you have examples like the Houston Astros who have, I mean, if their window, I, I can't, I don't know if you could call it close to closing, but it also doesn't feel like that they are a new thing anymore, right? It's been, you know, seven, six, seven years now that they've been good. The Atlanta Braves seem very set up for success long term. You're always going to have the big market teams, obviously, like the Yankees, the Dodgers, and the Mets, where they don't really go through this cycle. But do you think that we've kind of gotten out of the mid market team? sucking for five years, building for a three, four-year window, and then sucking again. It doesn't feel as predictable as it maybe did 10, 15 years ago. That's fair. And like you said, it it can work. The Cubs did it. The Astros in the early 2010s did it to kind of fuel themselves, build themselves back up for what was eventually, you know, two worlds. Serious titles in the last six years. And while that can work, I mean, I think you're right that these teams don't have to go through complete teardowns necessarily. I mean, some of them did, you know, the Orioles and the Reds, again, did. And now they're kind of reaping the rewards of that. But I don't think it's necessary that you have to go through a complete teardown. But it might be hard to compete year after year if you're only, you know, taking half measures and not going to do that. However, I mean, nobody wants to watch tanking. I mean, I don't think it, I think that's fair. I don't think anybody wants to see their team lose 110 games, even if you know, you're talking about the first overall pick in like April already, but I don't know. I think that's a good question. I hope it's not the way of the future that everyone, you know, completely tears down and stinks for three to four years before coming back into relevancy. But I don't know that it's necessarily the best idea for them to do it or not, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's just interesting because I think that probably, probably speaks to what we were talking about earlier about more teams being competitive and being in it. It just like, it doesn't feel like you can kind of label bad team, good team. And it's kind of half the league versus the other half of the league. Um, Last, last couple of things. I want to get some division picks from you at the very end, but the trade deadline to me is going to be very fascinating, maybe because of its lack of activity. And I keep talking about the amount of teams that are still in it. And it feels like that could be a lot of teams that are in maybe buy mode or neutral mode at the trade deadline, which will, of course, lead to a scarcity of sellers. Like, how do you kind of view what this trade on 
trade deadline is going to be like. It just doesn't feel like there'll be a ton of movement because the amount of teams that are not looking to unload players. What do you, how do you kind of view it? No, I think you're right. I mean, I think some of the bigger names for one are in weaker divisions, but in which the teams who had those players don't seem poised to just tear it down. Shane Bieber of the Guardians. I mean, the Guardians are, I'm pretty sure, below 500 still, but they're, what, two, three games out of first place behind the Twins. White Sox, same thing. I mean, I don't think they'd win the division, but you can see an argument for them trying. Corbin Burns and the Brewers tied for first. I mean, I know he's been mentioned as a trade candidate, but all of these teams with some of the biggest name players who are rumored to be available are contending and or at least, you know, close or decent. Um, uh, We'll see if they blow it up. We'll see if a team like the Mets, you know, sells off some marginal pieces, which sounded like after owner Steve Cohen's press conference last week, like the way that they might be going if things don't turn around for them. You're right. There's not a ton of sellers. I mean, some of the purported sellers like the A's, I mean, what do they have left to, to sell <laughs> off? I mean, honestly, though, like the Royals, you know, Vinny Pasquantino is out for the year. I doubt they would trade Salvador Perez um, at this point, you know, kind of a franchise icon there. Yeah, there may not be that much movement at the deadline. It might just be a lot of minor trades like you started to see, you know, Aurelis Chapman already moved to Texas. Guys like that might be on the move from teams that aren't contending, but I don't know that it's going to be some huge splash deadline like we usually see. Who's been the biggest surprise for you this season? I kind of think it's Arizona. Um, Yeah, honestly, I mean, they're solid. They have, you know, Zach Gallen. They have Merrill Kelly, who's now on the I.L. I just didn't really think the offense was going to be this good this quick. Um, as far as, you know, Christian Walker, Catal Marte, Lourdes Gurriel has had a really good year. And then Corbin Carroll's turned into one of the best players in the NL as a rookie. I'm pretty sure he's still rookie eligible. So then, but um, now that I think about it, the Rangers have been a huge surprise. And I, they've even better on the offensive end. I think almost everybody in their starting lineup has an 800 OPS or better. And that's just phenomenal. They're trying to make improvements on the pitching side, you know, Evaldi's been really good. John Gray's been pretty good. Um, Martin Perez, not so much. Obviously, they just went out and got Chapman to help one of the league's worst bullpens. They're fun. I mean, I don't know if you watched the game yesterday against the Astros. It was 12 to 11, came back from a 10 2 deficit. That was crazy. And the Rangers are definitely a surprise. I didn't pick them to make the playoffs. Unfortunately, I didn't pick the Rays to make the playoffs at the start of the year. That looked like a mistake like two weeks into the season and definitely is a mistake. But we all make mistakes, right? We'll get back to Theo DeRosa in just a second, but wanted to take a quick break to remind you. Podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked at the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Football season will be here before you know it. Go ahead and sign up for Skybox Sports Picks, college football, and NFL picks. All you have to do is go to skyboxsportspicks.com. You can try it for a day, a week, a month. You can go season-long, all sports, sports-centric. I'd recommend just get the year-long total access package. It's going to save you money in the long run. They're the only way to profit in the long run. Don't lose money this football season by thinking you can just go off your own lanes in your own brain. Skybox Sports Picks goes by the math. They are the professionals. They hit and make money consistently every single year. If you're into sports wagering, just do yourself a favor. Go to skyboxsportspicks.com. 
Go find a picks package. Use the promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E. That'll get you 20% off. They'll email you the picks in a nice color-coded spreadsheet by unit, and boom, you're more equipped to profit than you were trying than you were you were before trying Skybox. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue. Go see Greg. If you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, that's rippywrights.substack.com. You get free newsletter from me and discounted meats. Right now, it's three six-ounce bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks. Just go in and show Greg proof of subscription, and boom, that'll get you covered. Go find all your own favorites once you get set up there. It's prom grilling season. The weather's great outside. Enjoy the summer. Throw something awesome on the grill. LB's is the best butcher shop in the world. Check them out, LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Theo DeRosa. Yeah, absolutely, and you're right. I did watch a piece of that game yesterday. That was the quintessential two teams that don't trust their bullpens at all game because it went 10-2, 11-10, and then, of course, 12-11 to finish it off. That was a crazy baseball game, again, with two teams where it feels like the Astros have like two, three guys they trust, and they basically kind of run them until they're on fumes, and they have two, three straight days in a row where it's like, I don't really know how we're going to get out here past the starter. And so – that's uh it feels like there's also a lot of flawed teams too. It doesn't feel like I mean, outside of probably the Atlanta Braves. Um, I would have said this about the Rays until about a month ago. It feels like they've been kind of a slightly above 500 to 500 team for about four weeks now. But it doesn't like there doesn't feel like there's a team that's like the 110 win Dodgers or the 108 win Yankees where it's like them versus everyone else. It feels like it's a lot more wide open. And of course, as soon as I say that, it's probably going to be the Atlanta Braves just cruising through the playoffs as you know, it tends to happen that way. But it just doesn't feel like there's one overarching dominant team. It feels like there's a lot of parity at the top as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see that some of the top divisions in baseball are so closely contested, like the NL West, you know, the D, uh, the Dodgers, the D-backs, the Giants are in the mix too. Padres could get hot. Padres were my preseason World Series pick and it hasn't looked great. Um, the alias, you know, the Rays, the Orioles, I think every team is at 500 or better. If not, they all have a positive run differential last I checked. So you are seeing a lot of parity with the exception of the Braves who have just been really good and pretty clearly right now playing the best of any team in baseball will that last probably they're set up to compete really well Acuna's had an incredible year but you're right I mean there has been more parity than we're used to seeing so far and I hope it continues through the rest of the year if you were trying to explain to someone who didn't follow baseball how the Tampa Bay Rays compete the way they do and how they've built what it, this product that seems to be a contender year in and year out of one of the smallest payrolls in baseball how would you explain to them how they do it yeah, I think it's a testament to their incredible player evaluation and development teams, whether that's, you know, scouting and uh, R&D, you know, player development, coaching. I think that's just such a big part of it. I mean, they've clearly identified players who will succeed. I'm just thinking of the other day, you know, Jake Diekman was a not great major league reliever this year for the White Sox. They DFA'd him, I believe, or they sent him to Tampa for nothing, if not and he has a 2.2 ERA in 20 games with the Rays. So it's kind of what they do. And I've been kind of critical of their refusal to spend money and their willingness to kind of trade away anybody who might be making big money. But they managed to field successful teams, including a World Series making team in 2020, without doing that. So I think it would be interesting to see what they would do with 120 million payroll, you know. However, I don't know that it would be great for baseball if they won, because I feel like they would just dominate if they did that. So I don't know. 
They really would. I mean, that's the team you don't want to trade with. Like, I feel like if I was an opposing GM and they called about a player, I'm like, I'm not listening to this shit. I'm hanging up because it's like how they, they, I don't know. It seems like they have a very knack, good knack for getting the best out of players who were flawed with prior organizations. So I don't know. One of the better run franchises in professional sports. That is for sure. All right. Before I let you go, I want to get some divisional picks because as we talked about, most of them aren't decided in July, which is kind of a refreshing change. We could honestly pick just about any division in baseball. We'll start. AL East, do you think Tampa holds on or do you think New York or Baltimore can catch him? I think the race hold on. If Judge was healthy, I mean, I think the Yankees would challenge for it. They were my other what's his pick. Like, I had Padres over Yankees preseason, and that's really going badly so far. Um, I may not have believed in the Rays, you know, preseason when I didn't pick them to make the postseason, but I think right now, I mean, they're the best team in the division, and they've just – banked so many games so early on that i mean they've given themselves a really good shot they may not be the best team in the division for the rest of the year but i still think they'll win it who comes out of the central um al central that is i mean it feels like we just talked about what the disaster of like what how big of a disaster the white Sox are and they are six games back in the loss column out of first place in early july it's just kind of crazy that division it just seems like a hot mess who do you think actually wins that thing I think it'll be the Twins. I, I know it's probably cliche to just pick the first place team in every division, but they have really good pitching. They have a decent offense. It's not great, but I mean, they have some guys, you know, Buxton has been pretty solid. Correa has been pretty slow, but I, I have to feel like he's going to pick it up right now. I mean, I think they're the best team in that division and I'm putting up the standings here to see kind of how close it is. They have a one game lead right now with it, over the Guardians. The Guardians just haven't impressed me. I don't really think they'll trade Bieber but if they do I mean if they sell off other pieces then I mean I think it'll be the twins because I don't really see anybody else winning that vision I can't see the Tigers or White Sox doing it they're the only team with the positive run differential in the division and if you take out the Guardians who's like negative minus 10 it's really not even close which is just kind of wild to look at AL West do you think the Rangers hold on to this it seems like they've overperformed obviously not having DeGrom that really sucks because that was a marquee piece of their offseason the Astros feel like probably the best team if they can just get healthy and kind of get all of their guys back before, you know, you get to mid-August and you kind of run out of time to make up ground. I would, I guess I'll throw in my opinion here. I think the Astros probably end up catching the Rangers, but uh, how do you think the ALS shakes out? Yeah, I've started to feel like I think the Astros also catch them. I just don't think as good as the Rangers offense has been, I don't think that they're going to be able to sustain it for another 80 games. I mean, the Astros have all this talent, good starting pitching, even despite some of the injuries that have happened to them. You know, really good offense with up and down the lineup with some guys like Yanir Diaz and Chaz McCormick starting to become valuable offensive contributors. Jordan Alvarez, who's one of my favorite players to watch, should be back soon. That obviously affects their timeline and how they might do for the rest of the season when he comes back from what I believe is an oblique um, injury. They're only three games back. They just... I believe split that series in Texas. I think they're good enough to win the division. Honestly, I think it will probably be close. The Rangers have been really good and are probably going to continue to add to the team at the deadline, but Astros the best team in, in the West, I think. What about the NL Central? Because this probably could have been a pretty boring division. I thought at the beginning of the year, it would be the Cardinals and everybody else, maybe the Brewers, but I didn't 
definitely did not foresee this Reds thing. I struggle to believe how real the Reds thing is, but when you look at they who they've beaten over the last almost you know month and a half sample size, now they've won seven of eight series. They're well on their way to make that eight of nine there in Washington. So far as this game gets underway super early here on Fourth of July, but um. They, I, as soon as I, I say that, I struggle to believe how real it is, but they've also beaten very good teams in that stretch is my point. I probably still favor Milwaukee up until about two weeks ago. I probably would have still maybe even picked St. Louis, but that just looks like it's not turning around in the slightest. Do you think the Brewers hold the Reds off? How real do you think this Reds thing is? I think it's pretty real. I mean, since those guys have been called up, like Steer and McLean, I believe they have a darn good record and obviously the season record speaks for itself 46 and 39 tied for first in the division however i still think it'll be the brewers which is interesting because i haven't watched a lot of the brewers this year they don't seem very exciting you know they're not great i mean they're 46 and 39 and it's above 500 it's solid but it's not fantastic but they've clearly found a way to win games you know they've been in the playoffs fairly often yelich is having a pretty good year burns not so great but they're gonna get Brandon Woodruff back eventually if they haven't already I think they're the best team in the division and the Cubs I think had one of the best run differentials in the central but they're already seven games out and that's not easy to make up Cardinals 10 and a half out is doable but every time I think they're starting a run they lose a game in interesting fashion like they did yesterday and I just it's hard to see them changing the tide on that this year it just seems like a really off here in St. Louis, which is rare for them. It is rare. And like you would think like that's probably one of the sellers at the deadline, but you definitely never think of the St. Louis Cardinals as potentially unloading at you know the early August trade deadline. You mentioned the run differential. This is nuts. The only team in this division with a positive run differential is the Chicago Cubs at plus 22, and they're the fourth place team in the division. It's just <laughs> I don't know how that makes a ton of sense. Lastly, before I let you go, the AL West. I just assumed the Dodgers would probably run away with this sucker. I know the Padres spent a ton of money co- to compete, but then you look at it and they're the second to last team in the division and not really a ton of signs of turning it around either. How do you see this division playing out? Yeah, I guess we're just going with the Braves for NL East, right? We didn't talk about that one. But yeah, that's the pretty- one that's just out of that That to me. And I mean, unless you I, I go, you're a Phillies guy. Give me an argument that the Phillies catch them. I don't really have an argument for it. I mean, <laughs> they're a good team and you could see, you know, Harper and Turner and Schwarber finally turning it on this year. None of them really has been that strong, especially Harper since Getting back from Tommy John surgery, um, I mean, there's an argument to be made that their starting pitching catches fire and the bats, you know, finally heat up. But they're already 12 and a half back on the Braves. And the Braves, you're right. I mean, I don't think it's that close. I think they're pretty easily going to win that division. But as far as the West, like you mentioned, I don't know. I feel I don't feel very fun picking this, but I mean, the Dodgers are always doing what they're doing. And I don't see that changing this year. They're two and a half out right now. You know, the D-backs have played really well, but I think it'll be the Dodgers, barring anything crazy. I don't think the Giants are quite that good. Padres, like you said, just too far back right now to really see them winning the division. I still feel pretty confident they're good enough to make the playoffs. But right now, I mean, it's easier for me to go with one of the teams that's already in that position. Dodgers have done it year after year, and I think it'll be them again. He is Theo DeRosa, writer, researcher for Major League Baseball. I really appreciate the time, my man. This was a lot of fun, and uh, happy 4th of July. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks.
All right, that'll do it for our show today. I've got Colin Brister coming down the pipe Friday as we talk some MLB draft stuff. I've got an interview set up with uh, Corn Ferry Tour player Wilson Fur, who's uh, right on the cusp of earning a PGA Tour card. So uh, we'll probably drop that at some point this weekend. Thanks for listening to this podcast as always. Thanks for C Spire for hopping on board the Rippy Rights podcast family. We will talk to you again on Friday.